Thank you. Can everyone hear me okay? Good, good. Uh, my name is Kevin. I'm an alcoholic, of course. Um, thanks for that intro, Spike. Um, that It just so happens that that's what I'm working on currently in my program is active listening, less speaking and more listening. But hell, in the next three months, I may be back to yakety, yakety, yak. So just enjoy it. Um, so I've been sober this time around, and I always like to emphasize that because that's an important part of my story these days. But I've been uh, sober this time since December 13th of 2015. And for that, I am truly grateful. Uh, I've actually been around the program of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, for about 12 and a half years now. And, uh, well, you'll be able to put it together as I get into my story. But <clears throat> anyway, so... Uh, Typically, the way I like to do this is I like to confine it to the book. And the book says, plain and simple, our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we're like now. So just in a general way, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to take a deep dive into childhood traumas or anything like that. Uh, you know, the kind of clubs or bars or places I went to or the kind of crimes that I did, kind of dope that I, none of that stuff, just in a general way. So um, what it used to be like uh, for me is, you know, for a long time before Alcoholics Anonymous, I, I thought that I was unique because I thought that somehow I had the worst childhood ever and my family was just so messed up and, and all the dysfunction in my family and, and uh, all the, the bad things going on in the community that I lived in. I thought that, you know, I was unique and it, it I don't know, somehow that gave me a license to keep doing the things that I was doing to myself. But uh, but I find out after working this program that, uh, you know, I'm just a garden variety alcoholic. You know, when it comes right down to it, you know, I I could I could always say that that race played a factor in me becoming a drug addict. I could say that, you know, the religious upbringing from my grandmother and my household and everything that played a factor and all that. But. You know, what it comes down to is this. I drink, just like it says in the doctor's opinion, I drink essentially because I like the effects produced. And that that just blows away all of those excuses right there. So all of that woe is me and that, that pity party about how fucked up my childhood was and my dad didn't take me to ball games and all that. You know what? Everybody that walks through those doors in Alcoholics Anonymous has a story. Everybody, it, they, the things that we went through before our uh, addiction and uh, alcoholism might be a little bit different, but everybody went through something, and I'm not special, right? So uh, I'm not going to go into my childhood and all that kind of stuff. I've just described in a general way what it was like, but I'll just jump straight into where my disease took off. And for me, it took off when I was in high school. Uh, the summer between my sophomore year in high school and my junior year in high school was the first time that I really, really got that effect produced uh, by marijuana. You know, I started off my my disease. You know, a lot of people, you know, they uh, different issues and stuff like that might be a part of their story. It is for me. You know, alcohol is too, but it started with marijuana, and I was warned way back then by my guardian at the time that 
that uh that marijuana was supposed to be a gateway to other things and i thought like like most teenagers do that that old people don't know what they're talking about and blah 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 blah. i'm having fun and i would be lying to y'all if i said that that everything was all doom and gloom and and it was all screwed up and all that because as i reflect and I'm not glorifying it, but as I reflect on my high school days early on, it was fun. It was fun. It was a lot of fun and very little consequence. And it, it that's how it started for me. It started off as a peer pressure thing, you know, because everybody was doing it. You know, you go to a, a party, you go to a weekend party at somebody's house where their parents are on vacation or whatever. And, uh, and you, you get loose a little bit and everybody's doing it and you just do it. It wasn't because I went there initially seeking that out but that was um like i said that was the summer of 1983 in between my junior i mean my sophomore year and my junior year in high school and by the time my senior year had started uh i had to begin my senior year of high school because i got kicked out of my other high school in a, in a different high school across town in fact it was our crosstown rivals um and consequences were starting to pile up but i was still having fun right i was still having fun and and i still thought that old people didn't know what the hell they were talking about and and i'm not going to be the one that gets hooked and my life is not going to be destroyed um those weekend parties they they got to the point where they were really fun it was cool to to go because we got to see so-and-so's band is going to play and uh you know all the cheerleaders are going to be there and and, uh, you know, oh, yeah, so-and-so from across town is going to be there. But by the time my senior year came around, the only thing that I could think about when I got ready to go to those parties was how many kids are going to are there going to be? And is my dope dealer going to be there? Is my pot dealer going to be there? And that was it. And I should have known back then. But, you know, I had that that terminal uniqueness that that a lot of people have, you know, early on. So. Um, consequences started piling up and I, I continued to, by this time I was a daily pot smoker. I, I drank, you know, but it drinking really wasn't my thing. I, I drank mostly just to supplement my pot smoking, um, tried a few other issues, you know, stuff like that. I did a lot of experimenting and stuff, but pot was my thing. And I thought that it, it was the thing that was, it made me all right with everybody. I could dance better. I, I was better at sports. I thought that I was smarter. I mean, it was the thing. Just like just like I said initially, I'm a garden variety alcoholic, and, and I think that a lot of us have that. So um, I barely uh, graduated high school on time. I had to take a lot of Saturday classes. I don't know if they still do that now, but back then, if you got in trouble a lot, if you got suspended a lot, they would make you go to school on Saturdays, which was kind of... It was kind of messed up, but the flip side of that was all the screw-ups and all the pot smokers went to Saturday school. So guess what we did at Saturday school? <laughs> Same thing, right? So that's kind of how it was uh, starting off. Um, two weeks after I graduated high school, um, I got news back in Texas, which this was in uh, Palo Alto, California, by the way. Two weeks after I graduated high school, I got news back in Texas that my mom passed away. So I, I came back to Texas to attend her funeral and everything. And by this time, at 18 years old, my dad had passed away when I was 12. 
and now my mom was gone at age 18. Wow. Um, a year exactly to the date of my mom's funeral. My mom's funeral was August 25th, 1985. On August 25th, 1986, I had a brother that was tragically murdered. Oh my God. And so from then on, I, I had this sense that, you know, I, I hear people talk about issues of abandonment and stuff like that. And that's kind of what I felt like at the time. And, and from that point on, it was like, I vowed that, that nobody was ever going to fucking abandon me again. You know why? Because I'm going to leave first. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. I became a runner for many, 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 many years. So, um, 1987, uh, I ended up moving back to Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, it's one of those geographical things where we, we think that somehow things are going to be better because we're in a different place. And it's, it's just like what they say in the rooms of, you know, wherever I go, there I am. You know, wherever I went, I always took me and my problems with me. And my, my uh, weed smoking had escalated to, to other issues. My drinking had escalated. And, and uh, I started having legal troubles. Uh, 1992, uh, I ended up getting into a big time. A legal issue. I ended up getting sentenced to 25 years in the Texas Department of Corrections. Wow. And 25 years old and and getting sentenced to 25 years, I thought that my life was over. You know, I ended up doing eight years, five months, and 16 days in prison. And that amount of time away from society, uh, a person has a lot of time to think. And, and I did think is, is what I did. I, I, I replayed scenarios over and over in my head and and I, I I finally came to the conclusion that yes, alcohol and drugs is my problem. And I'm not gonna ever, ever, ever let that happen again. I'm not gonna ever let that trip me up again. So in um in May two thousand one I was released. Wow, that's that's a trip that's like 19 years ago, I was released after that long, lengthy sentence, and, and I got out, and I had heard about AA, I would heard about other fellowships similar to AA, but I really didn't know. I, I thought what it took was just a strong will, you know, and, you know, determination and all those kind of things, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, you know, accept responsibility, you know, and you can get it. And so uh, I got out with, with all the intentions in the world. And, uh, and this is what happened. This is the what happened part of my story. This is, this is what got me introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, it took six years. It took six long years, actually six plus years, for me to, to have the vital step one experience that I needed. You know, some people... Some people get it as soon as they lose their first job, you know, or they lose a relationship or, you know, something like that. I'm not one of those kind of people. I, you know, I, I lost a lot and I, I still continue to try to do things my way. But in that six year period, uh, you know, there, there's a part in the big book that describes it perfectly for me. It, it says that uh, in, in chapter three in step one, where it talks about, uh, we have to smash that delusion. It, it, it says, we learn 
that we had to fully concede to our innermost self that we were alcoholic. But it doesn't reference we learned, where did we learn? How did we learn? Well, I submit to you today in my story, it took me six years. It took me a little bit over six years of trying things my way. And it went into a, an endless cycle that, that was exactly like this. May of 2001, I was released from prison to what is called a therapeutic community, which is kind of like, it's kind of like a halfway house and it's kind of like a rehab all in the one, right? And um, in that in that uh, therapeutic community, I, I was still trying to do things my way, and I and I had it screwed up in my head, thinking that as long as I don't do the hardcore drugs, as long as I don't do illegal acts, I'll be okay, right? And remember, I just I just said to you, I thought long and hard over that eight and a half years when I was in prison about what my problem was. It was alcohol and drugs. But it was 45 days after my release, right around 45 days after my release, doing all that time, all of a sudden, those old ideas come back. Remember in, in how it works, some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas and the results were nil. Man, I wish I would have known that back then. God, I wish I would have known that back then. I. I was still holding on to those old ideas. I was holding on to my weight. And and yes, the therapeutic community and my parole officer say, you have to go to so many AA meetings a week. You got to get your paper signed. And I did that. I did that. But the other parts of it, you know, get a sponsor, do those steps, those 12 things on the wall up there. What do I need? Another, what do I need another man to, to tell me about this? Hell, I can fucking read. I can read. I see what it says. I can work it myself. Some of us tried to hold on to our old ideas and the results were nil. That's exactly what it was. Um, so I would I would successfully complete these, these therapeutic communities, even though at times, in some of them, you know, I was holding on to my own little hard and fast rule that as long as you don't do hardcore drugs, as long as you don't do illegal activities, you'll be fine. So I would drink. Even though the parole officer said don't drink, I the, the lawyer in me thought drinking is not illegal. You can't make me, you can't take away my right to drink. That's my right. God, God, I hate this. It took me six years to learn a really simple lesson. But um, I would leave that therapeutic community. I would I would successfully discharge. I would get my my uh, completion certificate. I would slam it down on the parole officer's desk and basically, I mean, not literally, but by my actions, slam it down on my parole officer's desk and say, see, I told you, I'm not like what you say that I am. And sure enough, I mean, I would get a little bit of self-respect back. I would get a little bit of respect for my family and my community back. I would get that job. I would start, I would start getting things in gear in life and those old ideas. And I know probably none of y'all have ever had this, but those old ideas would always come up on me in the best of times. It's it's like in the worst of times, if I lose my job, I'm not gonna go out and get high. That's when I that's when I really dig in and really start working hard to try to get myself back up on my feet. It's always for me, it's always in the best of times, right when I got that promotion 
or right when I just got that new car or something like that. And I would get those old ideas that, yeah, you know what? Everybody's smoking weed now. Just one, just a little bit. I could do just a little bit, right? And I would do it again. The cycle would start. The uh, the uh, phenomenon of craving would be activated in my body, and then I would want more. And then the obsession of the mind would kick in. And I would, I would keep going, and I would keep going, and I would lose everything. And I don't know about you guys, but I, I'm the type of alcoholic and addict that once I start, I get out of my way. That's the best thing I can tell you is get out of my way because I'm going to burn it down. I don't, I don't even play with any of it. I don't, I don't try to half-ass it or anything. And I'm the same way in my program today. I try my best. I really do. I try my best not to half-ass anything in my program. But um, that's what would happen. I would, I would burn it down. I would end up getting a parole violation. So I would have to go back to that same parole officer that I went to and said, see, I told you. And I would come in with my tail tucked between my legs. I'm like, yeah, you're right. I know. I know. I screwed up. But please don't send me back. If you please don't send me back, I promise I'll, I'll, I'll do right this time. And, and, and here's the thing. If you hook me up to a, a lie detector test, I would have passed it with flying colors every single time. Just like when I was released from prison in 2001, I was sincerely, you know, I sincerely thought that this was it, that I wouldn't screw up anymore. But I had absolutely no concept of the disease of alcoholism, you know, how we get the the obsession of the mind and the phenomenon of craving both working against us at the same time. And, and now, I mean, now in sobriety, I'm fine. As long as I don't put alcohol in my body, I, my mind is still kind of screwed up. <laughs> you know, it is. I mean, I don't obsess over alcohol and stuff like that, but it still gets on that hamster wheel about other things at times. But I'm okay as long as I don't put anything in my body. And that's the thing about alcoholism is, is it's a twofold disease that I'm screwed either way I go. So I went through six years of this cycle exactly like this, right? In uh, in 2006, uh, and and you know I I'd gone to multiple therapeutic communities all across the state of Texas. I had moved uh, from Dallas. I I went to one in Lubbock, <clears throat> went to one down in Houston. I ran from that one. So I I did the geographical thing, and I was trying to run from um, I was trying to run from these consequences. You know, but I kept taking me everywhere I went. But finally, in uh, in 2006, I caught a I caught a new case. Actually, this was my second, third new case that I caught, and uh, and this was the beginning for me. I, I met a lady who uh, who was my attorney at the time, and uh, and she talked to me candidly, and and it, she, I mean, to put it simply. She planted the seeds in me that maybe I could make if I gave myself a chance. I mean, she asked me some simple questions right there in the holder with the first time I met her. And I, I knew immediately this is a God thing because attorneys are usually trying to get your case resolved so they can move you on. And she wanted to talk to me about me. You know, had I ever been to rehab? Had, had I ever tried? You know, had I gone to Alcoholics Anonymous and stuff like that? And I was like, uh, 
this lady, as a matter of fact, I just texted her uh, right before I spoke, and I, I thanked her again. I'm, she and I have been friends uh, ever since 2006 when she was my attorney. Uh, she's been a, a great, great help and supporter to me all along my way in recovery and my career path, everything. But um, when, I, when I ended up doing the time for that, that new charge that I got, I got out and I tried one more time. I tried one more time my way. I'm going to try my way one more time. And here's the, I, I get some of the stupidest ideas that seem so brilliant at the time <laughs> until they're not. But uh, I had this idea that, okay, I'm not going to smoke weed anymore. I'm not going to do drugs anymore. But I am going to drink and I am going to sell I Every time I try that little trick, I, I become part-time dealer, full-time addict, you know, and I become my best customer. And the same cycle started all over, all over. And by this time, my alcoholism had, had ramped up a little bit to where I was drinking quite a bit. I wasn't drinking harder stuff. I never I never was a hard liquor drinker. I was always a, a beer or malt liquor drinker, but I was starting to drink more. And so, uh, I mean, things kept going and kept going and kept going. But finally, in, in 2007, after I tried it my way one last time, I still had those seeds planted in my mind that maybe if I gave this a legitimate shot, I might be able to make it. And so my parole officer told me point blank. She, she showed me my file. She was like, look, this is your file. This is your file. These are all my other people's files. She said, I don't, I don't care what you do. You can go to jail or you can go to treatment. Either way, you're off my caseload. Either way. <laughs> For an alcoholic like me, it took me a little time to think about it. Hmm. Jail. Food sucks. Can't go home when you want to. Can't watch TV. Treatment. Got to do what they tell me to do. Um, okay, I'll take the treatment. So I go to treatment, and I've got this attitude in, treat- in treatment that, you know, it's not going to work because I've tried it. So I thought, I've tried it. I've tried recovery. It doesn't work, at least not for a knucklehead like me. Maybe I am unique. But while I was in that rehab, then I, I checked in on September 24th of 2007. When I was in that rehab, be, between the time I started working the program and up until when I, you know, really, really got interested, I thought to myself one night, just thinking, and I think, I can't speak for everybody, but I think every alcoholic at some point gets this little moment of clarity where they think, you know what? Maybe those people in AA are right. Maybe I have been half-assing it, you know. Maybe I haven't ever really given this a legitimate shot. And so I decided right then and there, really out of defiance, that I was going to try. I was I was so rebellious and defiant that I was going to dive into this program all the way in giving it 110% because I wanted to prove to other people that it doesn't work for knuckleheads like me. And so uh, I started the process. You know, I started the process. You know, in step two, it talks about uh, in the big book, in chapter four, it, it asks a simple question. It says, do I now believe or am I willing to believe 
you know, that power greater than myself, yada, yada, yada. And that was the question that my sponsor posed to me when I did my second step. And, and all I had to do was just reflect back on my recent history, you know, on all the things that I believed in that was total bullshit. You know, I believed that moving from Fort Worth to Houston would stop me. It was bullshit. I believed that changing jobs would stop me. It was bullshit. I believed that moving out of the hood would stop me. It was bullshit. I believed that switching from malt liquor to light beer would stop me. All of that, all of it was bullshit. And so I thought to myself, why wouldn't I at least be willing to try this? At least willing to try this program. And then, so I went for it, right? And, uh, and the rest of it, I mean, it was, it was textbook. And I, and I would love to say, I mean, I went from, from September 25th, 2007 to March 2nd, 2014. I mean, it was totally textbook. It was a textbook or almost textbook recovery. Um, I mean, it was like something out of a Hollywood movie, you know, Rags and Riches movie. I mean, I literally went from the homeless shelter to being in law school with seven felonies on my on my record, on transfer parole from another state, going to law school and about to be a lawyer in another state. But I love to say, you know, that's my happily ever after right there. It stopped right there. But that's where uh, I ran into troubles. And that that's where I learned a lot about really going deep into these steps, you know, in step six in the 12 and 12, and I'm not a big 12 and 12 person, but uh, I've really, really internalized this part where it says, this is the step that separates the men from the boys, right? That's, that's what I missed the first time around in the program. And so on March 2nd of 2014, those old ideas came back and they came back out of nowhere. I mean, out of nowhere, it's literally, I mean, one minute I'm in law school. I, I'm I'm acting general counsel. Get this, I'm acting general counsel of the Oklahoma State Pardon and Parole Board while I'm on Texas parole. <laughs> I'm about to be a lawyer. I mean, I'm, I'm president of my student organization. I'm a research assistant. I got the respect and support of all these lawyers and judges and everything in the state of Oklahoma. And all of a sudden, I get the idea that. Yeah, smoke a blunt. That's what we're going to do. And the reason why I can look back now and I can see it clearly in hindsight, the reason why that old idea came up like that is because I hadn't taken that that deep dive into step six, that step that separates the man from the boys. You know, that that step, it actually answers its own little query at the beginning of that chapter towards the end. It talks about the the thing that separates the men from the boys is, is the difference between striving for a self-determined objective, which is what I was doing because I wanted to be a lawyer. Look at me. My chest was puffed out. I'm wearing $800 suits. I'm driving a Mercedes Benz. Just five years ago, six years ago, I was in the homeless show, you know, or, you know, Am I willing to strive for that, which is the perfect will of God? I hadn't been. It was all about me. And, you know, y'all may have heard this saying that that when 
when you get clean and sober, your disease is out there doing push-ups. Well, I'm here to tell you, yes, that's true. But in my case, so was my ego. My ego was doing push-ups too. And like when, when that relapse came and I smoked that blunt, there is no, there is no possible way you could have told me even to this day, what is it? Six years later or so, a little over six years. There is no possible way you could have told me on Sunday evening, March 2nd, 2014, that one blunt was going to lead to me going back to everything. There was no way you could have told me that. No way you could have convinced me of that. But that's what happens. That's what happens, at least in my case, because I don't do things half-assed. And once I, once I, I activated that phenomenon of craving within me, everything that it had taken me to build up in six and a half years was gone, was destroyed totally, totally in less than six months. Gone, totally. So I had to drag my sorry ass back to Fort Worth, Texas, from Oklahoma City back to Fort Worth, Texas. Um, and, and I continued in that delusion. And those old ideas come back. When they come back, they come back stronger. I, I kept thinking, I'm going to get it right. I'm going to get it right. I'm going to get it right on my own this time. I'll get it right on my own, right? And, and a lot of that was just, it was just shame and guilt. Shame and guilt was beating my ass to death. And I couldn't be honest with another man that, hey, man, I fucked up. Will you help me? So 21 months back out there, and it's and it's it's true what they say. It gets worse. It gets where I could I could not get drunk, I could not get high. By this time, my disease had escalated to the point where um I was a morning drinker. I was still drinking really, really shitty rock gut beer, 211. If any of y'all ever ever heard of that. 211 if you've ever if you've ever drank hot 211 before yeah you might be a candidate for this for this program you've ever you've ever drank hot for loco before i'm just saying i'm not i, I just know <laughs> that shit does not taste good at all it, it doesn't it only the effects produced the only thing you get out of that but that's that's how my disease had progressed i got to the point where i was drinking 211 every morning just so I could function. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, man, but finally, um, on Thanksgiving, thanks, actually Thanksgiving weekend, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday of 2015, I'm, I'm sitting in a, in a vacant house. I mean, this is what I've been reduced to in less than two years after being that close to becoming a lawyer, that close. I'm sitting in a vacant house and and when I secluded myself in that house, I thought, okay, man, I'm by myself. I can finally get that ah, that ah you know, that that ah feeling that 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 I look for. You know, people are people are always fucking up my high. People are always in my ear telling me what I should, shouldn't do, telling me that I screwed up. So I'm by myself, I've got a case of hot beer. I've got all the other issues that I need. I've got all the paraphernalia that I need. And I'm finally, I'm finally going to get that ah, that I've been seeking ever since I relapsed on March 14, 2014. 
And by the time it started off, it was okay. Thanksgiving day. But by Sunday evening, I was curled up in a fetal position on the couch. And finally, I was like, fuck this shit. Bad as I feel, everything that I've lost, the shame and the guilt, everything. I, the only thing that I know that's ever worked for me, ever worked for me, is Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I know there are other programs out there. There are other spiritual ways that people can get sober. I'm not here to talk about that. I'm just here to tell you what Alcoholics Anonymous has done and is doing for me. I knew that was the only thing that had ever worked. And so finally, I got to the point where, excuse me, you see, I still got a drinking problem. <laughs> uh, I finally got to the point where, where it was like, I, I surrendered. I surrendered literally and figuratively speaking. Uh, I did something I'd, I'd never done before. Two things I'd never done before ever in my life, ever, ever. I'd never flushed dope down the toilet and I'd never turned myself in for anything. And uh, on Saturday, September uh, 12th, 2015, I knew I had a warrant out for my arrest for a parole violation. And so I walked myself up to Tarrant County Jail drinking a hot 211. My, what I didn't know what was going to happen next, but drinking that hot 211 and I walked myself up and I turned myself in and, and, uh, and that's what things started to turn around. You know, I, I went into there, uh, not knowing if I would ever feel comfortable in, in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous again, ever, ever knowing if I'd ever get my family's respect back. If I, if I'd ever be able to look myself in the mirror, cause I I screwed up royally and there was no, there was no excuse. I mean, it, some people slip. I didn't slip. I literally jumped off a bridge. I mean, just out the clear blue. And I, I didn't know if I would ever get any of that back. And it, it wasn't about the material things or anything like that. It was a, the feeling that I had inside about me, my self-esteem, everything, you know, all that shame and guilt that was just beat me down. And so uh, I ended up having two new charges put on me. So now I've got nine felonies, right? I got two new charges put on me and I was like, you know what? I don't care. I don't, I don't care how long it takes in here, whatever it takes. I, I got to get back to where I was when I was in Alcoholics Anonymous at that point where it doesn't matter who I'm around, what I'm doing, you know, what I've got, I am okay. And most of the time, I'm better than okay. I'm actually pretty good. I've got to get back to that. That's what I wanted. And so uh, I worked and I worked and I worked and I worked my ass off. And uh, I was released in, uh, in July of 2016. So, and some people don't, some people don't, don't count their jail time. I'm not, I'm not saying one way or the other. I don't give a damn. I'm counting my jail time. I count mine because when I went in, I I knew what I wanted back. And I went into that to that jail with one thing of value, and that was a pocket edition of the big book. You know, the first 164 pages, that the little bitty small one. They let me keep it because they thought it was a Bible. And to me, it was like a Bible. And I, I read the pages off that stuff. I mean, I read it, read it, read it. And so when I got out, and most of the guys, probably all the guys that are online, 
uh, that have ever been in, in trouble and did any kind of time before. You can probably back me up on this. But when I usually when I get out of a rehab or a jail or a place like that, I've got one of three things on my mind. Sex, food, or get fucked up. Or any combination of it, right? When I got out that time, it was like, nope, I don't give a damn about anything. I don't know what next week is going to look like. I don't know if I'll ever be okay again. But I know this one thing, this one thing, this one thing. On, I am not getting drunk and I am not getting high this first day out. <clears throat> so I got out uh, with an ankle monitor on. And, uh, man, it's it sucks to, to be newly sober with those old memories in my mind that, damn, Two years ago, two years ago, I was acting general counsel of a state agency, and now I'm wearing a fucking ankle monitor. And I'm working making $9.50 an hour bussing tables. 49 years old, bussing tables for $9.50 an hour after I was that close to being a lawyer. But those are the kind of things that I had to work through. I had to work through that, and and I built on. On I'm just watching my time here. I, I built on, <clears throat> and this is what it's like now. I I continued to work. I built on uh, on on what I promised myself that first day. I'm not going to drink, and I'm not going to get high today. And sometimes, sometimes that's got to be enough. You know, sometimes at least for me, early in recovery. There were times when I didn't want to call my sponsor, which I did. Uh, I called my sponsor every single day except for Sundays because he, uh, he plays golf on Sundays. And I figured, man, this dude, I've talked blisters in his ears. I've told him all the fucking problems of the world and myself every single solitary day. So at least I can give him a break on Sundays. But I called him every single day except for Sundays for that first year I was out. And that first... That first three months I was out, I had an ankle monitor on my leg. Um, I lived in sober living. And that that's humbling. All of that stuff is humbling. But those were lessons that I had to learn. Those were things that I had to learn from six and seven that I didn't learn the first time. You know, the part in six that I talked about before, you know, if you read step six up on, on the wall where it says we were entirely ready to have these defects of the character removed, a lot of that stuff, a lot of that, that 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 BS that I was still doing, faking and shaking, I'm in the program, but I'm dipping out and I'm hanging out with people who are not in the program later on and I'm chasing women who are at these dance places and I'm not talking about ballet. You know, I'm doing all these things. Those were defects that I didn't look at before, you know, and I didn't have any any kind of humility that it talks about in step seven. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't realize it says it simply in, in 12 and 12, I can just ask for it. I don't have to be humiliated into it, but those are the kind of things that I had to work through uh, coming back in. So what it's like now, y'all, is uh, I've, I've been able to get my family back. I've gotten my family's respect back. When I, when I turned myself in, when I was sitting in that vacant house in 2015, my family had moved away. It was their house. They had moved away, and they would not even tell me where they are, where they were at the time. I mean, since since then, my sister, who who left me in that vacant house, uh, I've gotten her love and her respect and her support back. 
all of my family support back. I mean, the respect of my community, everything, and, and even against all odds, with now with two new felonies on top of the other felonies I had before, I was able to get readmitted into law school with nine felonies on my record. So, and I'm not saying this to brag. I'm just talking about the program. This, 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 and and many other miracles is is this is what I see in the program on a day to day basis. I see people come in all the time who are broken down, who are just like me, and like within no time, they get that self respect back. They get that self esteem back. The little material things and all that stuff, all that stuff, I found out. I don't even have to. I don't even have to seek that stuff at all. All I have to do is do this program. And it it basically falls in my lap. But I was able to get back into uh, law school. Uh, I did relatively well there. I graduated. Right now, uh, uh, just two weeks ago, two weeks ago today, as a matter of fact, the state bar of Texas. You know, people thought that I was crazy. They thought that I'd be. I had a better chance of buying lottery tickets than to try to be licensed to become attorney an attorney in Texas. But uh, two weeks ago, I won my first round of appeals by unanimous vote. You know, so uh, I'm still continuing to work the program. I mean, I've, I've, I've been appointed by the Supreme Court of Texas and uh, Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, the two highest courts in Texas, to serve on their legislative research committee as their lived experience expert. Because because I'm I'm the only one that has experience doing dumb shit, you know, and the legal system. So, I mean, these are the kind of things that happen, you know, when you when you just pour yourself into it. I mean, I'll end with this. Uh, you know, I, I love how it works. I could damn near recite it word for word, but it starts off with a real, real simple promise, and it's a promise to me. It says, "Rarely have we seen a person fail." who has thoroughly followed our path. And it doesn't mean later on it talks about perfection and progress. Doesn't mean I have to perfectly follow. It just says thoroughly. I just have to do my best. It says rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Um, I've never, I've never seen a person fail. Never, not once. In almost 13 years experience in Alcoholics Anonymous, I would say intensive experience in Alcoholics Anonymous, I've never seen a person fail. I mean, it works. I mean, today I uh, I have a couple of guys that I sponsor. I'm really, really proud of them. I think they're on on the call now. They're they're doing what they're supposed to do, and you can see it. You can see the benefits in in their lives now. I mean, they may not see it, but you can see it. And I'm just so fucking proud of them and and all of you guys. I I really appreciate it, and uh, I hope y'all got something out of that. Thanks.